We spoke last week about the fact that we've been called to know Christ, to not just know about him, but to actually know him. Not to just have an intellectual knowledge of Jesus and be able to hang and have a good conversation at the coffee table after the service and play the part, but to really know Jesus. And so we're continuing with that theme this morning. And as you learn Christ, you're going to find yourself changing your mind about everything. You know, the word repent, as we've shared before, does not mean coming down to the front of the church and crying a lot. The word repent means to change your mind. It means to change your mind. To change your mind about who God is. To change your mind about who you are. To change your mind about what life is all about. So as you learn Christ, you'll find yourself changing your mind about almost everything. You will be, as Romans 12, 2 says, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Starting in verse 22 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 22, Paul tells us to put off, to take it off, concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You might want to underline the word deceitful in your Bibles in verse 22. Paul says, put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You remember that we were encouraged in verse 15 to grow up in all things into he who is the head, which is Christ. Here we find what Paul calls the old man, our former nature, who we were before Christ, without Christ. Paul tells us that that person, the old man, the old self, is still growing as well, but not into Christ, into corruption. The new man is growing into Christ, and the old man is growing into corruption. They're almost like two suits, if you will, that you have. You have the new creation, who you are in Christ, you have the old you, the old man. The old man is getting better and better at being corrupt. The new man is becoming more and more like Christ. This is the picture Paul is painting for us. What he's trying to say is there's no neutrality in your spiritual life. No place is static. If someone says, how are you doing spiritually? There's no truth to the answer. I'm just kind of stuck. Paul says you're not stuck. You're growing in corruption or you're growing in Christ. You're moving in one of those two directions. There is no room in Scripture for anyone who is neutral. You're going one of two directions. We know that the Father works to draw all men to himself, and if we refuse his gentle invitations, he'll use tragedy and stress and trial to try and get through to us. C.S. Lewis says pain is God's megaphone, is what God uses to get through to us. From the moment you're born, God is saying, hey, hey, hey. If that doesn't work, sort of pokes you and says, hey! Oh, 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 right, I need God. Man, God works through pain. But the more steadfastly we ignore him, the better we become at it. The better we become at it. And at a certain point, it's like we simply become deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We tune that frequency out. You kind of see this effect when somebody has a, has a baby. We have a kid who's one who has 
a scream that can only be compared to a velociraptor being run over. Uh, it's just one of these things that just rah, cuts through, just kills you. But most of the time, our kids who hear it all the time have tuned that frequency out. You know, and so when I go, I go, because they're around it all day, I go work for a whole day, come back in the house, and he cries. It's like, how are you guys functioning with that sound? They just got used to it, and they've tuned it out to, to the most part. But the same thing can happen with the Holy Spirit. He's prompting you. He's calling you, and you ignore him. You ignore him. Eventually, you condition your soul to say, just tune that frequency out. And the volume drops, and you can't even hear him anymore. You become spiritually dead like we talked about last week. And you say, you know what, I don't feel convicted about this. Holy Spirit's still speaking. You just can't even hear him anymore because you got so good at tuning him out. And you do not want to become skilled at tuning out the Holy Spirit. I promise you that. I like the phrase deceitful lusts. And I had you underline that in your Bible because there's no greater deceit than lust. There's no greater deceit than the desire of the flesh to have something or someone. If I, if I could just indulge myself, then I know I'd be, I'd be so happy. If I could just indulge myself, I'd, I'd, I'd be satisfied. And we know that that's not true at all. The truth is you'll be destroyed. You'll be destroyed. It's the great lie of lust being driven by the old self who's growing in corruption instead of the new man who's growing into Christ. The old adage is, is so true that lust is like a fire. The more you feed it, the more it demands. The more you feed it, the more it demands. The hotter it gets, the hotter it burns. You ever notice that, that you can never satisfy lust? You can never satisfy it. It just feeds itself and grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Paul says, put it off. And instead... Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In verse 24, Paul says, And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So notice the order here. First, you you put off the old. You put off the old man. Then you're renewed in your mind. In other words, you're no longer going to walk like those who are involved with sin. And as you begin to put on a whole new way of talking, living, and behaving, your new lifestyle eventually becomes who you are. And I want you to write this down on your outlines. Your new identity in Christ is not a deception, it's a decision. It's not a deception, it's a decision. Because it can be very easy as you begin to change your life as you walk in Christ. Other people might look on and say, dude, dude, I know what you were doing last month. That's not you. You're just fooling yourself. Come on, dude. Really? Like that's you? It's not a deception. It's a decision. You've repented. You've changed your mind about who you are. And you're beginning to act accordingly. If I merely sit here and wait for something to happen, just wait for my personality to change, for my heart to feel loving, for my soul to feel kind, I'll wait forever. I'll wait forever. I have to make a choice. I have to choose to be compassionate. I have to choose to love. And as I do so, I become compassionate. I become loving. The picture that that Paul is painting is like putting on a garment. It's like putting on a a shirt in our context. context. The, The picture isn't a really dirty shirt that's been washed, you know, oxy clean. He's not saying, hey, we cleaned your shirt, now put it on. Paul's saying, no, no, you're putting on a whole different shirt. You're taking that one off. You're putting this one on. It's a complete 
change. It's a complete change. Our salvation is described as going from death to, to life. It's not described as going from average to good. It's death to life. It's one extreme to the other. The picture is putting on this new nature like one would put on a shirt. We put on the righteousness of Jesus is what we do. And we struggle with this idea because we're so drawn to works-based faith. We're so drawn to the idea that I'm good because of what I do. The idea that, that, that by the way we live, we can wash our dirty shirt and make it clean. Paul is saying you put on a new shirt and that shirt says righteous on the front. Jesus gave you that shirt. He says, put this on. This is who you are. And you are this because you put it on. And you can put it on because I gave it to you. This is who you are. You're righteous. You're clean. You're holy. It's got nothing to do with us. It's a gift from God. We put it on and we choose to walk in that as our identity. And until the end of our earthly lives, Satan will never stop trying to get us to leave that shirt on the shelf every single day. He'll tell us, you know what, your old shirt is so comfortable. It's so familiar. It's broken in. It's, it's so you. Put the old shirt on. It's much more comfortable. It fits easily. We have to choose every day to put on the new man, as Paul says. Every single day. It's a choice. And this is the best way I can put it. It's a choice to become who you are. It's a choice to become who you are. We've been talking about this through Ephesians, that our identity is child of God. And what God is saying, that, that's who you are. So become that. So become that. It's almost a paradox. Become who you are. That's who you are. So be that. Be that. Don't settle for anything less. That's the invitation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And if we're going to put on this new man, Paul says this is what it looks like. These are the decisions we need to make. Verse 25, therefore put away lying. You know, in Scripture, God is called the father of lights. And Satan is called the father of lies in Scripture. God says, you're my kids, so walk in the truth. And Satan's first strategy to attack God's first kids, Adam and Eve, was to lie. God doesn't want what's best for you. Disobey him. Eat from the tree. You'll be like God's. God's just trying to hold you back. A lie was Satan's first strategy. And, and every time we sin, this is the truth, it's ultimately connected to a lie that we've chosen to believe. Every time we sin, it's connected to a lie we've chosen to believe because we've chosen to believe that the sin will result in greater satisfaction than God's ways will. We're choosing to believe that, no, if I do that, that'll bring me more satisfaction and happiness than doing what God says. Every time we sin, it's connected to a lie that we've chosen to believe. Put on righteousness, put away lying, says Paul. He doesn't say, hey, go to counseling to overcome the... Uh, dysfunctional tendency of exaggeration or miscommunication. He just says, stop lying. Stop it. Stop right now. Just stop. He continues, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. If I place my hand on a hot burner, but my nerves lie to the brain saying it's not hot, I will get burned. 
I'll still get burned. So too, if one part of the body of Christ lies to the other, everyone gets hurt. Everyone gets hurt. And this this is key. I find it interesting that Paul uses the phrase members of one another because as we found in Ephesians before, that's the verbiage he uses to describe the relationship between those of us in the body of Christ, in the church. Here's why that's important. Because when Paul says his neighbor, when he says the term neighbor, he's talking about other believers in the church. That's how we know. It's right there. He says that verbiage that we are members of one another, and he uses neighbor in that same sentence. So he's talking about those of us in the church. He says, speak the truth to one another. Obviously, we're called to do this to everybody. It's not like, well, I didn't tell him the truth. He's not really a part of the church. It's not like we get to do that. We speak the truth to everybody. But Paul says this is especially, especially important in the church. We should never have to question the honesty of one another in the church. Paul says we're hurting each other if we do that. We're part of the same body. You might be a nerve ending in a hand in the body of Christ, and you're lying, and you're going you're gonna to get burned if the brain says, hey, no, no, that, that won't hurt you. That won't hurt you. We've got to be honest with each other because we're part of the same body. And all this is connected to one of the big central ideas in Scripture about what the church is supposed to be. And the idea is this, that the church is supposed to be different from the rest of the world. It's supposed to be different. There's supposed to be a contrast between the way we interact with each other and the way that people interact with each other out in the world. That contrast is supposed to be as pronounced, Scripture says, as the difference between night and day. That's how extreme the contrast is supposed to be. And and one of those areas is supposed to be truth. We spoke last week about speaking the truth in love. We talked about how if you really love someone, you tell them the truth in a caring way. You tell them the truth. And we know that it's very hard to find that kind of love outside of the church in the world. Most people will say, well, you know, just leave them alone. Let them do their own thing out of respect for them. Political correctness is sort of the banner of our culture. But in the church, we have the word of God telling us the truth. And in the church, we're called to be truthful with one another. If you see someone touching a stove, we're called to say, hey, you're going to get burned. I'm telling you this because I love you. You're going to get burned. Supposed to be very, very different than the world outside. We're supposed to genuinely care about each other enough to tell each other the truth. This whole list that Paul is going through here was depressing for me as I studied this week. Because I don't think I've mastered anything on this list Anything, not even one thing. Uh, Paul continues in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Here's what I love about this verse. Paul doesn't just say, don't get angry. Paul's like, oh, you're going to get angry. You're going to get angry. They're going to invent these things called cars. You're all going to get angry. Trust me, you're going to get angry. But he says, don't let your anger cause you to sin. Paul's talking about real anger here, the kind of anger that causes you to make your ugly face and, and you just can't hide it and people are like, are you okay? And you're like, yes. Why do you ask? Paul's talking about that kind of anger, the, the kind of anger that causes you to lose emotional control. And, and how many of you know, once you lose emotional control, you're in a bad place. Nothing good ever happens when you lose emotional control. There's no stories that are like, I just lost control of my emotions and started doing random acts of kindness. 
Never ever happens. Only bad stuff follows the phrase, I lost control of my emotions. Only bad stuff ever happens when that happens. You're at risk to say things you'll wish you could take back but never will be able to. And sometimes you're at risk to do even more destructive things than that. And this is not an encouragement, it's a command. Paul says, do not sin in your anger. Don't do it. Don't use your worked up emotional state to justify your sinful behavior. Don't say, I lost con- well, well, I lost control for a minute there. So, uh, you know, it's, I kind of get a pass. Paul says, no, 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 no. You're responsible even when you lose control. He says, don't use your hurt and pain as an excuse to sin. Paul says, you don't get to say, well, they, they made me do it. They pushed my buttons. They made me do it. Paul says, it's no excuse. And we find a theme throughout Scripture that cautions us not to lose control of ourselves. You can write this down because for the believer, losing control of oneself is simply another way of saying we've taken control of ourselves back from the Holy Spirit. Isn't that the truth? When we say we've lost control, we've really just taken control over from the Holy Spirit. We've just taken control over from the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, it says, I will not be mastered by anything. So even for a moment, I will not be mastered by my emotions, by my anger. Let's have a moment of honesty. Don't we know that that's true, that when we lose control of ourselves, it's like the Holy Spirit has left the building. He has left the building. The Holy Spirit's in there, working to help us handle this in a Christ-like way, but we sort of shove him out the way and say, I got this. It's like Kanye with Taylor Swift. The Holy Spirit is like, well, you might not want to do that. We're like, I'm going to let you finish, Holy Spirit, but first, we just go crazy. We're crazy. I'm going to let you finish, Holy Spirit, but first, but first, I got to do some things. We just shove the Holy Spirit right out of the way. Shove him right out the way. That's the picture that came to mind as I was, I, I was thinking about myself. The Holy Spirit is, is saying, Jeff, you know, you might want to do that. I'm like, I got this. I got this. I've got the perfect comeback right now. And I don't want to waste it by uh, listening to the Holy Spirit right now. Our anger is not an excuse to sin. We're not to be ruled by our emotions. You're, you're going to get angry, but don't let it lead you to sin. Right in the middle of those moments, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Ask him to help you. He will. He will. I promise. So how does one be angry without sinning? How do you be angry without sinning? Well, Jesus actually showed us. He went into the temple, and instead of making it a place for people to meet with God and honor God, they were turning it into a marketplace to make a profit. Jesus got mad, turned over all the tables in the temple, went nuts out of righteous anger. There's a place for righteous anger that honors the heart of God. It's called zeal, even sometimes. There are people disrespecting God in the Old Testament, and a dude grabs a sword, goes and kills a bunch of them because they're dishonoring God. God says, good job. Good job, man. You get it, you know. Please don't anybody go out and do that. I'm really, really not encouraging that. I'm seeing the headline in the paper. The victim said his pastor encouraged him to do it out of zeal for the Lord. No, 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 don't do that. But there's a place for righteous anger. But if we're honest, most of the time our anger isn't righteous, right? (laughs) 
We're not really righteous. God would be offended by your driving. How dare you? It's really not what, what goes on most of the time. Paul keeps going and his encouragements just become more and more convicting. He says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. I want you to write this down. This is a literal verse. Literal verse. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. It's not figurative. It's not allegorical. It's literal. This, this verse reminds me of the time Joshua is, is waging wars. The Israelites are on their way to the promised land. They're in the middle of a battle. They're winning, but they're running out of daylight. Joshua prays, God, make the sun stand still. God says, okay, gives them several more hours of daylight. They win the battle. How many of you know, if you're going to keep this verse, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, you're going to find yourself sometimes praying that prayer, God, I might need you to make the sun stand still for a few more hours before I can work this out. I might need a little bit of help right here. But nothing good happens when you give bitterness, hurt, and pain more time to fester. Because that's what it does. It festers, right? It doesn't heal itself. When you're angry and bitter, you're not like, you know what my strategy is for dealing with this? I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm sure it'll work itself out. Said no one ever. That never, ever works. In fact, I say it all the time, but it still never, ever works. The truth is you have two options. Sort it out with the other person. If the other person won't hear you, sort it out with God. Sort it out with God. Listen, we all have arguments with our spouses, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our kids, all kinds of people. But this is one of the defining characteristics of a believer. This is one of the things that makes us different as God's kids. We don't do bitterness. We don't do bitterness. We don't do unforgiveness. We don't do it. We don't leave things open-ended at the risk of others being hurt. Jesus took all those rights away from us on the cross. Took them all away. He forgave us. He loved us. And all that after we crucified him. Even as he's on the cross, what he's saying about the people who are crucifying him is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even on the cross, Jesus is honoring this command to not let the sun go down on wrath or anger. When we accepted his gift of forgiveness, we gave up the right to hold other people's sin over their heads. We gave up that right when we accepted the forgiveness of Christ. If you go to bed angry, you're in danger. Let's find out why. Verse 27, he says, nor give place, so don't give an opportunity to the devil. Satan can work even, even while you're asleep. If you're angry with your husband or, or your neighbor when you go to sleep, you give the enemy an opportunity to plant this root of bitterness within you. And you'll wake up the next day feeling angry, right? None of us have ever had the experience, you know, I went, I went to bed uh, really, really mad because I didn't deal with it. But I woke up the next morning and I thought, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Not that big of a deal. My wife knows, knows this so well that she'll just tell me right now. She's like, is this one of those things where you're saying you're going to get over it, but you're not really going to get over it, and you're going to wake up tomorrow morning cranky? To which I usually say, no. You know, and she's like, yeah, it's totally one of those things. We're going to deal with this right now. She's a godly woman, and she just knows. She just knows. It's not a strategy for dealing with anger or bitterness to say, ah, that'll just magically fix itself overnight. Once I've had all night to stew in it, and really think about it and let it fester, you know. 
It's like having an open wound and, and saying, you know, uh, I'll just leave it alone. I'm, sh- I'm sure things will get better. It doesn't work that way. You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it. Hebrews 12.15 says, We should be looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. There's simply no place for the devil in our lives. There's no place for the devil in our lives. And Satan is always looking for a way to get into our lives. And one of his favorite strategies is through bitterness and unforgiveness. Works almost every time. And when we do that, we're leaving a door wide open for him. And he will never turn down that invitation. We're just saying, hey, come in. Plant a root of bitterness within me. He'll never turn down that invitation. In verse 28, Paul says, let him who stole steal no longer but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Stealing from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the first Adam was a thief and was kicked out of paradise. To a thief on the cross, the last Adam, Jesus Christ said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus makes everything different. It makes everything different. So if you've been stealing from employers or the government, cheating on your taxes, Paul says start working. Start working. Be honest. And the principles of the Lord are so different to the principles of man. And here's what I notice. When we think about the question, how much money do I need to make in my life? What are my goals? What are my goals? Have you noticed that most of the time we tend to think only in terms of ourselves. We tend to think, what is the lifestyle I want? What are the needs I have? And when I get those, then I'm where I need to be. Paul says, work well, work honestly, so that you'll have something to give he who has need, so that you can be generous. It's a completely different mindset. So Paul actually says, he says, you should be ambitious. You should work hard. The goal of the Christian life is not to say, hey, you know, my whole goal is to get to the point in life where I don't have to do any work at all and I have enough money to take care of myself, me, and mine forever and then I can just withdraw from life and make a difference in nobody's lives and just enjoy myself for the rest of my life. That's sort of the normal world's dream, right? It's the ideal retirement for everybody. It's like, hey, have enough money to just spend all your life doing everything you want And just have a whole existence that's all about you. And you don't have to deal with work or a boss or anything. It can finally be all about you. Paul says, no, 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 work hard so that you have something to give he who has need. Work hard so that you can be a blessing not only to yourself but to other people as well. That's the kingdom concept. That's the heart of God. That's the mind of God. You can write this down that God calls us to be a generous people. Calls us to be a generous people to be a blessing to others as a reflection of the endless blessings we've received in Christ. I believe that God wants us to be financially ambitious, but for completely different reasons to the rest of the world, for his glory and for the benefit of being a blessing to others so that we can be a vessel for God's blessings to flow to others. Verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. 
Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. We all know people who, who suck the life out of you, right? See them in the grocery store and you're like, whoop, <laughs> let me just let them walk past. But you know, they suck the life out of you because you walk up and you're like, hey, how are things going? And you like really try to give a burst of positivity to lift, lift them up, but the answer's always the same, right? Well, you know, just when I thought things couldn't get worse, um, they did. And um, I mean, I know, I know God loves me, but um, maybe I'm one of those people where uh, my suffering brings him glory. How are you? We all know people like that, right? Uh, if you don't know somebody like that, you're probably that person, okay? Just so you know. You're like, I don't, I don't know anybody like that. Yeah, it's probably you, okay? But we also all know people, hopefully, who leave you feeling energized. You know, you have one conversation with them. You spend some time with them. You walk away saying, man, God is amazing, God, God is with me. I, you walk away with that greater awareness that God is with you. We all know people like that. They just lift your spirit. You have a growth group with them. You have a coffee with them, something, and you just feel more connected to God and the Holy Spirit than when you first began that conversation. We all know somebody like that too. I hope if you don't get in a growth group and spend some time with people like that. There's incredible power in our words. And as believers, we've literally chosen to build our lives on the words of Jesus Christ. And there's a real difference we need to notice when it comes to our speech. The person whose speech never builds up anyone else's faith is completely self-absorbed. This is going to go against what you probably think. Because you probably think the person who's like, well, my life is terrible. You probably think, man, that person is so humble they're depressed. The truth is there's no humility in that, and I'll tell you why. That person is so focused on themselves, they can't see anything else. They can't see anything other than their problems and their situation. They're completely self-absorbed. It's the absolute height of conceit is to be concerned only with yourself and your state of being. Only yourself. They're completely self-absorbed. The humble person the person who really considers others better than themselves, that person has issues too. They have issues too. They're not in a good mood because everything's awesome. But what they're doing is they're really considering others better than themselves. They're saying, I'm having a conversation with a person and I want to build that person up. I want that person to leave this conversation knowing God cares about them. That's how concerned with other people they are. And so it's often the difference to what we think. You might think, oh, that person, you know, I don't know that they're humble. They're kind of outgoing. Don't be self-absorbed. Don't spend your whole life concerned only about yourself and your situations. Ask the question, how can I build another person up? How can I edify them in their faith? Because here's the beauty of it. When you build up others in their faith, you are built up as well. You're built up as well. When you build up others in their faith, you are built up as well. Because you're not just reminding them about the greatness of God. You're reminding yourself. The truth is for me, every time I, I get to teach, I get built up as well. 
Because I'm looking at the word of God as I teach it, and I'm being reminded this is the truth about what God says about me. This is the truth about who God is. This is the truth that I'm called to surrender my life to Christ. I'm built up by the word of God as well, even as I'm sharing it. This is a principle that God has built into us as we build up each other. Which person do you think Christ wants us to be? The the self-absorbed person who's too preoccupied with their own issues to offer encouragement to anyone else? Or the others-focused believer who's able to build others up even as they go through their own trials? I think the answer is obvious, right? And to underscore that point, don't forget, Paul wrote these encouragements to us while he was in prison. He was in prison. He didn't write a whole long letter saying, I have here chronicled the woes of Paul. Let this be read among you that you might know my suffering in greater detail. Day three, still in chains. Still no flushing toilets. Still no food. Jailmate still smells. Paul doesn't do that. He builds people up even while he's in prison. Paul models this for us. Anybody here in prison right now? If you are, don't answer that question. (laughs) But uh, none of us are actually in prison right now. So we've got no excuse not to be building other people up. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Come on, like you mean it. Let's say amen. Amen. Paul says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So let's watch our speech and make sure that we're building others up in the faith. And I want you to understand something. I'm not saying don't be real. I'm not saying if you're going through something and someone says, hey, how's your life going? Just say, awesome. I'm not saying do that. Don't lie. Don't be unauthentic. I'm not going to say, hey, I noticed you were crying um, after the service. Could you maybe be a little less selfish? I'm not going to do that, I promise. Here's what I want to tell you is being real in the truest sense. Somebody says, how are you doing? And you say, you know, I don't have a job. I don't have a job. That's not being real if you're a believer. And let me tell you why. Because here's what it means to be really real if you're a believer. How are you doing? I don't have a job. I don't really know what God's doing right now, but I know God's with me. I know God's got a plan. So I'm just trusting him and staying focused that as always, God will be faithful. That's being real because that's the full truth. Just saying I don't have a job, that's not even the whole truth if you're a believer. That's not the only reality at play in the situation. To be real is to acknowledge that there are things you're going through, but in the same breath say I know God is greater. And it's okay to say, listen, would you just pray for me that I would continue to stand strong and believe that God is greater. That's what it means to be real and still build others up while you're going through a trial. Let's continue in verse 30. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. Clamor means yelling if you're wondering what that word means. So, If people are ever loud, you can just say, less clamoring, please, less clamoring. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you, along with all malice. You know, there's not a curse word that God hasn't heard. It's not like when you curse God, it's like, oh my gosh, my ears are burning. It's not what is going on at all. There's nothing that shocks God. God isn't grieved by how our sin affects him. 
Do, do we get this? He's God. He's in unapproachable light, going from glory to glory. It's not like you sin and he's like, oh, you got a spot of dirt on. Nothing affects the glory of God. It only grows and increases. He's not affected by our sin. The Holy Spirit is grieved because it hinders him from doing his work in, through, and for us. Holy Spirit is grieved because it hinders his work in our lives. Remember that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. It's not an it. It's a he. It's, it's a person that has feelings and has emotions and cares for us with the same heart of the Father, the same heart of the Son, Jesus. And he knows all the potential that God has put in us. He knows every good work that's been prepared in advance for us to walk in. He knows it all and he's grieved when our behavior means that we settle for so much less. So much less than he really has for us. To grieve the Holy Spirit is not a salvation issue. I want you to know this. We know this because in the same sentence as Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, he says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's not a salvation issue. It's a hindrance issue. Paul tells us to let all bitterness, wrath, Anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you along with all malice. Malice is just evil desires, evil intentions. There's no room for us to continue in any of these things due to our personality or our upbringing or our cultural or ethnic heritage. There's no excuses because our identity as children of the living God overrides and supersedes everything else in our lives. The presence of the Holy Spirit overpowers all of those things. All of them. God is greater than all of those things. When it comes to holding each other accountable to this lifestyle, you need to know that when you commit to Christ, you're committing to a lifestyle of Christ-likeness. That's the commitment. And if the Holy Spirit resides in you, you will want to become more like Jesus. You'll want to become more like Jesus. Have you made that commitment? It says, I want to become more like Jesus. Has the Holy Spirit inside of you put that stirring that says, I want to become more like Jesus? I've made that commitment. I still don't do that great at it, if I'm honest. You see, I, I still get bitter. And it seems like every time I, I get in my car and drive, I discover malice in my heart and uh, a desire to release wrath upon, uh, upon others. I still get angry in an ungodly way. I haven't mastered the art of never yelling in an argument. I don't think I've mastered any of these things. But I want to. I want to. And I'm in agreement with the Holy Spirit that I need to become like Christ. What that means for me is that I don't excuse my sinful behavior. I repent of it. I ask the Lord for grace and I try again in the power of the Holy Spirit. It means that, that I've made Jesus the standard in my life. Even though I'll never fully reach that standard in this body, He is the standard for my life. And maybe you're like me in that you've never really mastered any of these attributes. You've never mastered any of these things Paul is talking about. But what I want to ask you is, are, are you excusing your behavior or are you repenting of it? What's the standard in your life? And your response to that is the answer. Do you excuse it and just say, well, they pushed my buttons. They shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have cut me off. Or do you say, no, Christ is the standard for my life. I'm going to keep striving for that standard. When I mess up, I'm going to repent. I'm going to apologize to those I need to apologize to. 
and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep striving to become more like Christ as the Holy Spirit works in my life. Are you in surrender to your sin or are you at war with your sin? That's really the question. Is Jesus the standard you're aiming for? And I, I pray that he's the standard for all of us because there's, there's no greater character we could ever aspire to. There's no greater character. Verse 32, Paul gives the contrast here and moves to the positive. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We find that these things delight the heart of God and, and forgiveness is not a burden that God places on us. He's like, ha, 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 you're gonna have to forgive, deal with that. Forgiveness is actually a safeguard for our mental health and our emotional stability. This is literally some of the best psychological counsel. In fact, it's the best psychological counsel you could ever find. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let unforgiveness and bitterness grab a hold of you. This is psychological counseling from the one who created the human mind, the one who created the human heart. He knows what he's talking about. It's incredibly wise advice. After teaching his disciples to pray, Jesus went on to underscore only one point. Forgiveness, forgiveness. And he said, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And I really believe that what Jesus is saying is, is, is listen, if you think it's okay to hold unforgiveness against somebody else, you do not understand the cross. You don't understand it. You don't understand it. And Jesus is saying you need to question whether or not you're actually saved. Because if you can hold unforgiveness against another person and still claim to understand the forgiveness that God has given you, something's missing in this equation. Because on the cross, you were forgiven for the worst things you've ever done, the worst things you've ever thought, the stuff that only you know about to this day that has gone on in your mind and gone on in your life. Jesus forgave all of that. And Jesus says, but you won't do that for someone else. If there's one thing Jesus hates with consistency, it's hypocrisy. He hates hypocrisy. Hates hypocrisy. And Jesus would say to us, and to me, and to you, how dare you not forgive someone else when I've forgiven you at the expense of my own life? You don't have that right. You do not have that right. He's very, very serious about this. Very serious. He couldn't be more clear. We all know the truth, and this is on your outline, but this is profound. Unforgiveness is a far greater burden on the offended than it is on the offender far greater burden on the offender because you're walking around with bitterness you're walking around with unforgiveness it is wreaking emotional havoc in your life you're not free it's a burden on you it's a chain around you all the time the sad truth is half the time the person who offended you is not thinking about it even one hundredth as much as you are you're the one being kept in captivity, not them. You're paying a much higher price than the person who offended you. If there's someone toward whom you're bitter, do yourself a huge favor and forgive them. 
Do yourself a huge favor and forgive them. Don't be held hostage by your unforgiveness. Walk in the freedom of Jesus. As we've discussed before, Paul always points back to the cross as our motivation for everything. For everything. Paul never says, do this, because this is what good people do. He always says, in light of what Jesus has done for you, you should probably do this for other people. If God did this for you, this is how you should treat other people. This is how you should live. So why do we forgive others? Very simply, because Christ forgave us. Christ forgave us. We can't receive his forgiveness on one hand and deny it to others with the other. It's either or. It's either or. It's one or the other. We receive his forgiveness and we forgive others or we don't forgive others and we don't receive his forgiveness. Jesus is black and white literal about that. I choose to be forgiven and so I choose to forgive. How about you? I choose to be forgiven. I choose to be forgiven. So in closing today, I want to talk about just a few things. Maybe, maybe you've realized today that you have left an open door in your life for Satan. And he's come in and he's planted a root of bitterness through unforgiveness in your life. And if you're honest, you'd say, listen, this, this is not just a root there. There's a, there's a tree that's growing in my life of unforgiveness. And I let Satan in and now it's in full bloom and I don't even know what to do about it. Today, I want to encourage you as we worship after this message, go to the back, take communion, take some of the bread, dip it in the juice, come back to your seat, and as you take it, you're going to be reminded Jesus has forgiven you. He's forgiven you at the cost of his blood, at the cost of his broken body. And that power which raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. You have enough power in you today in Jesus' name, to forgive anybody that you've been unable to forgive up to this point. You have that power in you through Jesus today. You can walk out of here today free of that. Forgiveness doesn't mean that every emotion suddenly improves. It means you've made a decision, and the decision is, I will not hold that against them any longer. It doesn't mean that person becomes your best friend or that you pick up the phone and call them. It means that you, you release them. You say, you don't, you don't owe a debt to me over that anymore. Jesus has forgiven my debt, and so I'm canceling yours as well. You might need to do that today. Maybe today you, you've realized that you've been excusing behavior in your life that you really need to be repenting of. Maybe you've been just saying, man, this is just, this is just my personality. That's just me being me. But today you've realized, man, I, I really need to change. I need Jesus to change me. Today what's going to happen is, is you, you're not going to perfect that today during 20 minutes of worship. You're not going to master that issue. But what can happen today is you can say, say, God, I need you to go to work inside of me. I need you to change me. And you can confess, God, I, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with that anymore. I'm sorry. Would you help me? Would you help me be more like you? I want you to be the standard. And you can let God go to work in your life in that area.